fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Boel. And today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review the 2012 Finnish Nazi sci fi satire, Iron Sky. Or as we decided to make it, a drinking game. Yeah. A little more reasonable of a decision this time than (laughs) the promise, but... (laughs) The promise was so that we could get through the promise. Right. This was so that I could kill an entire bottle of wine in a night, which, heads up kids, after you turn 30, not a good plan for anyone involved. Well, also not a good plan to make a drinking game for a Nazi movie and then make the primary reason to take a drink being any, like overt Nazi shit like Zig Heiling or anything like that. Uh-huh, which was your first rule, and I'm convinced you don't like me or my liver. <laughs> I just... So I had seen this once before, and I knew it wasn't good. So I knew we were in for a time. <laughs> um, But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So for those of you who missed the movie Iron Sky is the literal story of moon Nazis and their plans to reinvade the Earth involving a captured iPhone in the unwitting help of President kinda Sarah Palin. Within the movie, we're treated to a fairly common love plot, honestly a few couple of jokes, and a biting satire of American political machinations. Yeah, and I want to go ahead and say, like... For those of you who skipped the movie, this is probably the best worst movie we've seen. Best worst. Like, out of the ones that are just honestly, indefensibly bad. Yeah. This movie managed to have actually a really good, solid, like, um, production value. Sure. It was funny. Sure. And, like, when you're working with something so ludicrous... I think this was an enjoyable time. Yes. For moon Nazis, it was okay. Fair. I will give you that. (laughs) I think the script is really enjoyable. I mean, there's definitely, as to be expected with a movie about moon Nazis, there are parts where the satire rubs a little too close to, oh no, that's not good. Right. And it's, it's worth commenting, you know, again, this came out in 2012. So this was a pre-Trump, pre-swinging of the conservative right, pre-resurgence of American fascism jaunt. Well, the fact that our president character isn't named as Sarah Palin, but has the Sarah Palin hair bump, has the Sarah Palin elliptical scene. Her, even her husband kind of looks like Sarah Palin's husband. Is very clearly supposed to be Sarah Palin, but they didn't want to actually ever name the president of the United States in the film to avoid any sort of backlash for that decision. Point being, also, the whole thing is that Sarah Palin-esque sends two astronauts to the moon as kind of a re-election campaign situation where when the astronauts are on the moon, they unveil banners that are the president going, yes, she can, with giant font underneath. Right. The the movie presupposes that President Not Palin... (laughs) creates a, a moon landing mission for the sole purpose of making it a publicity stunt and a, like, campaign bells and whistles thing. Mm-hmm. And all I will say about that is Joe Biden would not be able to pull that off. Uh, no. <laughs> he can't even pull off, like, I don't know, refunding student debt or anything with the Congress that he has. So like, no, Uncle Joe can't do shit. But let's leave my political commentary aside. Never let it be said we're not partisan. (laughs) But yeah, so I mean, this is this movie was kind of infamous for being 
oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, you gotta see this movie about fucking moon Nazis. Fucking moon Nazis. And it delivers on that very, very well. Um, it, it is a, honestly, like, I, I hold no joy for watching a movie about moon Nazis other than I think they really stick to the gimmick. They make this whole thing where, like, the history is secretly... Uh, a bunch of Nazis fled Germany in the late 40s before the end of World War II, colonized the moon, built a giant swastika-shaped moon base, and then had like an isolated Nazi colony. But so much of the aesthetic on the moon scenes is this like 1940s grunge tech, <laughs> which was actually, I think, a really clever application for the movie this is a a stupid movie more than it is a bad movie is what i'll say you know what i'll give you that because the acting is fine the like you said the production value is great the script is actually really fun and it's very dumb yeah it's very stupid i i i I would agree with everything. A lot of things being fine. I wouldn't go so far as to say anything is great, except for some of the like moments of satire are like objectively effective mm -hmm. instances of satire. Um, so this is a movie by a Finnish independent director named Timo Verensola. And for the longest time, I thought that this was a completely different guy who also went on to direct Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. I'm sorry. What? Well, yeah, that is a movie. Okay, all. all right, all right, all right. Yeah, okay, let's go back. You, you can see where I might think that. <laughs> Moon Nazis, Vampire Hunter President. Sure. Yeah, um, but as it is, this is actually um, one of the only films that Timo Verensola has made, um, the rest of it being kind of a bunch of indie stuff. The most high-profile project he's been associated to is absolutely this, with the second being Iron Sky 2, which features moon Nazis on dinosaurs. No, it does not. I mean, it absolutely does. So that one graduates from a bottle of wine... To a bottle of moonshine. To, oh, sounds like we'll <laughs> die if we watch Iron Sky 2, friend. <laughs> Well, like so many other movies, I don't I don't think we need to see Iron Sky 2, but I need people to know it exists. And it's moon Nazis riding dinosaurs that they like attach lasers to. Okay, that might as well happen. Right? <laughs> I will say, so there's so much going on in this movie, but watching this as a marketer, because there's a whole... A theme of the movie is we have to get the president reelected. Right. And so there's a major theme of the president's campaign manager. And there's a scene that you later explained to me was a nod to something else. Yes. Yeah, so uh, kind of our fourth build character is a woman named Vivian Wagner, who is like the head of a PR marketing firm and is the person that not Palin hires to had the re-election campaign and there is the scene there's a scene early on when like they think that the american moon landing has failed where vivian wagner's character does a direct recreation of this the famous hitler yells at everybody scene from downfall which if anybody needs further clarification is an actually really good Hitler biopic, but features a scene where Hitler just absolutely loses his shit at everybody, and so they redo that for the film. Which is totally beautiful, and I love how referential the script is. This isn't the first instance, and I'm sure we'll talk about a few others later. But Vivian is completely ripping off her entire crew, and then she asks everyone who isn't a director to leave. Mm -hmm. And I'm like... Why are all these underlings in this creative review meeting? They wouldn't be in here anyways. This isn't how this isn't how creative review works at all. Where are we from? The dark side of the moon. And we can't be. No, and this also isn't how like Nazis worked. 
Oh my god, you mean they didn't go to the moon? I am so fucking surprised. There are people who will argue with you on that point, is all I mean. What? No. Last episode we talked about how people will, like, deny the, uh, you know, Native American genocide and, and, you know, basically any genocide. There are absolutely crackpots out there who think that, like, the Nazis fled to the moon. And speaking of crackpots, so this movie utilizes shorthand really well. There is an astronaut who goes to the moon, who discovers the moon Nazis, who is a black man, mm-hmm. who is albinized, quote unquote. Yep, he is injected with albinism serum. Which, okay. So he is now white and is taken back to Earth. And then flash forward, I think it's like 10 years later. Three months, I think. Sure. <laughs> Just That is an important enough distinction that <laughs> I'm going to call it out. Okay. Three months later, he's got long hair. He's carrying around a cardboard sign and is talking about moon Nazis and how he used to be black. Right. And so the very good social commentary is like, you know all those people you come across on the street who are houseless and who are have conspiracy theories that seem very extreme. What if it was real? Exactly, right. And it is like an effective use, like you say, of just using kind of social commentary to instantly catch the audience up as like, oh yeah, of course, nobody believes the tall white guy who says he was a black astronaut who got captured by moon Nazis. Mm-hmm. You maybe cross the street if you see that guy is like screaming at people. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it is very effective. Yeah, the visual shorthand that they use of the cardboard sign and the fact that he's got a beanie with long hair pouring out of it is just really, really interesting. And it's, it makes a lot of sense that they have this conspiracy theory kind of idea around it. Like, moon Nazis. No, that's not a real thing. Right. And then... <laughs> I don't know what it is. There was something about this kind of like mid-aughts where there were a whole bunch of Scandinavian countries creating Nazi comedy movies... This is a, a, a English movie that was put together by a Finnish like group of writers and producers and whatnot. Um, and the other one that comes to mind is a few years earlier, there was a, a Norwegian Nazi zombie movie that was like, the whole point is just like, they're zombies, but they're Nazis. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm doing the reason my eyes are rolling back in my head, which of course our listeners can't hear, is that I'm doing math in my head about copyright time. Mm. I don't know if there's a similar historical period of time, but the reason I'm thinking about it is I know it's like 70 years is the minimum before you can say this copyright is expired. And so I'm wondering if the reason we saw it in the mid aughts is like, okay, it's this amount of time passed. And or, like, to soonology of, like, okay, yeah, let's leave World War II and Nazism alone for a good 70 years. And now that it's the mid-aughts, we can talk about it now. I mean, I like that reasoning a lot better than what I assumed was that, like, there was some sort of uh, rise of Scandinavian pseudo-fascism around that time period that a bunch of filmmakers were then trying to directly call out and mock. Oh yeah, no, that make that makes more sense and makes me. S- I love my little sweet candy self who's like, wow, maybe it has something to do with copyright law. And you're like, yeah, maybe it has something to do with the worldwide rise of fascism, Stephanie. You know. <laughs> Speaking of though, there was something that happened in the movie that you specifically wanted to like then examine a little bit more in talking about it. There are several uh, references by Nazi characters to the concept of Valhalla oh, and yeah. meeting in Valhalla and like just this kind of like praise of what is a like what most people know is a, as a Norse mythological concept. Mm-hmm. And you were like this. Why? This makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a little bit of background research just to make sure I wasn't talking out of my ass with this next point. Um, it was a like bona fide thing that Adolf Hitler, Heinrich Himmler, a lot of the head, 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 1% head Nazis 
were obsessed with Norse mythology and this concept of like, oh, it's the honorable mythology and the concept of dying to earn your right into heaven. And let's not think too hardly about how like the Aryan ideal is kind of a Scandinavian dude, tall, blue eyed, blonde haired. Um, and, and so it makes sense knowing that historical context for all of our Nazi baddies to be talking about, you know, dying and going to Valhalla for the honor and, and shit like that. And it makes sense, too, because we were um, we watched Mad Max a while ago and they had that same thing. And a lot of Mad Max steals from that idea of like the baddies are fascists. Right. And so it makes sense, like, okay, neo-Nazis tying together, just following Valhalla. And the, yeah, I mean, there's this just kind of objectively unfortunate thing where, like, for some reason it is Norse mythology, probably because a bunch of neckbeards think Vikings are cool, is, like, kind of totted up by a lot of fascist ideals as, like, the cool one, the one we want to emulate. Wow, they must have done a lot of revisionaryism about Norse mythology then. Because there's a lot in there that I don't think fascists would like. Oh, yeah, I mean, sure. Well, like, the whole idea of, like, Norse mythology is very... It's very similar to, like, yin and yang. There's a lot of feminine presence. And the last time I heard about fascists, they weren't too happy with women in leadership, so... No, not in leadership. I'm sure the fascists saw President Not Palin and were like, oh, this movie's bullshit. <laughs> well, so also, you know, they, the moon Nazis go down to Earth and they say, oh, yes, take me to your president. I'm excited to meet him. Right. Him. And it's presumed, oh, yes, of course, the president of the United States of America would be a man. And unfortunately... That's accurate because we can't have nice things in this country. I mean, indeed, I, I won't. I won't. I won't argue there. I did. This is like a blink and you'll miss it thing, but I'm pretty sure there's like one scene where President Not Palin is like looking at a a TV screen that is her and her opponent. And as best I could tell from this backwards one second image, it seemed like the opponent presidential candidate was also a woman. So the filmmakers like envisioned the the sci-fi satire where we have two primary presidential candidates who are female. Ah, that's how you know it's fiction. Yeah, you know. You know. <laughs> um, I brought this up because I know it like caused you annoyance, but this movie passes the Bechdel test. <sighs> yes, barely. Barely. We have several scenes of not Palin and Vivian Wagner. Um, I think I've said her name three different times. And, three different ways. And, and that's fair. Um, uh, having several conversations about, like, power and authority and military allowances. and Yeah. Well, and, and marketing and how I hired you for this reason. Why did I hire you again? And also, this is what... Um, this is why I hired you, I think, uh, not Palin says at one point. And then there's also a point where they talk about clothes. Like, what are you going to wear? Anything you want, babe. I'm sure you'll do great. The fact that Palin says babe. Is very good, Mm -hmm. I think. That reminds me of the other, like, historical call out of Nazism and, and German fascism that I actually was like, oh, you guys know exactly what you're talking about, and that's brilliant. They make such a thing about uh, Vivian Wagner's fashion as like as she's promoted to be the new general of Space Force. Mm-hmm. It's like, what are you going to wear? And she comes out in this objectively glorious like latex number with a feathered pinstripe cape, and it's like high-concept fashion. And that's like just such a funny thing considering... Fashion was a core ideal of the Nazi elite in creating mm. the Nazi look. Mm. Like, it, it, it was... People will always say, like, say that you go about Nazis, they're pieces of shit. They dressed sharp. They looked good. They had, like... I'm trying to think. It's one of the famous designers is, like, 
secretly designed Nazi uniforms. And so Coco just, Chanel. That's right. Exactly. Coco Chanel designing Nazi uniforms. So just fashion, use of fashion in the movie was brilliant. This is like, this is a candy bar of a film with a really bad, gritty, coarse, unpleasant chocolate. And then like a really nice caramel center. And the caramel center is all the like deep cuts of satire that the film makes. <laughs> That's right. While you were all whining about climate change and human rights and whales dicks, this is what we were doing. May I present you with tomorrow's exploration ship, the USS George W. Bush. I love that also we're talking about fashion because the whole premise of uh, Vivian's I new idea once she meets the moon Nazis is, oh, we're going to dress up the moon Nazis and we're going to make them hot. Yep. And we're going to make him, you know, the, the idea is we're bringing America back. And it's very freakishly close to we're going to make America great again kind mm. of logic of like, we want to hold our children on our shoulders like our fathers did and we're bringing back this really nostalgic not concrete at all idea of america instead of what america actually is right yeah and it very much is like vivian meets the, the moon nazis and immediately is like this is my campaign this is my new image this is it girl puts them like like gives uh, Julia Dietz a, a blowout and like dresses them up, replaces the swastika with the stylized V symbol, but keeps the red and white and presents that to not Palin as like, this is who you're marketing to, red state president. This is the like American ideal we want you to push forward and it works. Mm-hmm. This is the ideal. Don't you want to have dressed up German people? Don't you want to have white people at the center of your campaign? Don't you want to have white, hot white people in like nice press suits? Able-bodied white people mm. who are like of a acceptable attraction body type. Right. So anyway. <laughs> I, I think it's fitting that like we're kind of talking around the plot and there isn't that much to talk about plot wise. It, it just is exceedingly simple. Um, I think so much of the, like, moon Nazi stuff is more just kind of a a experiment in aesthetic mm-hmm. and, like, what crazy Nazi shit would we do? Oh, we would make it so that the Nazis had flying saucers and we would create this, like, unsaid implication that the Roswell crash and all UFO sightings were actually, like, Nazi defectors leaving the moon and coming to Earth. Yeah, because they do say, well, that never works. You never come back. Nobody who ever leaves ever comes back. Why is that, Nazi people who live on the moon? I wonder. I don't know. I couldn't possibly imagine being, like, culture-shocked by modern-day New York when I am used to the aesthetic of 1940s Germany Mm -hmm. and being, like, completely just blown away. Like, that almost happens to uh, our two Nazis who come back to Earth um renata and klaus like they spend three months just kind of like getting caught up in some new shit that isn't what they were sent to the to the earth to do by the head nazis and i think that is such a fun like time travel mechanic because aesthetically it is time travel and just the idea of you land in New York City and it just completely like almost brainwashes you and completely wipes away whatever you were going to be doing beforehand because it's just such an incredible culture shock. Well, and we haven't talked much about Renata and Klaus, who are two main, for the purpose of this podcast, they're our main moon Nazis. Our heroine and our villain, respectively. Correct. Uh, Renata is a uh, moon Nazi educator. Um, and definitely she is educating the way that she probably was educated her own self, which is highly revisionist. Yeah. And within her first couple of months on the moon, she sees the real version of Charlie Chaplin's commentary of Hitler. 
And one, it's so much longer than she thinks it is. And two, she's outraged that they were making fun of the Fuhrer, as she puts it. Well, so she she is right up until the moment where it hits her that like, oh, they were making fun of the Fuhrer because Nazis were bad and deserved ridicule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the idea that like in the 40s, somebody took a copy of The Great Dictator, which is the movie Charlie Chaplin made directly calling out Adolf Hitler in the 30s, um, cut it into like a six minute short film that was pro-Nazi and then uses that as propaganda, that's your effective take on revisionist history and the like idea of the scales falling off of her eyes when she actually sees it in real life and then like completely forsaking the the idolatry of mm-hmm. all the Nazi propaganda bullshit she's been fed and then becoming our true heroine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really good. And then, like, you mix that with, like, a very silly airlock, blows all my clothes off, (laughs) Rocky Horror-level striptease scene. Where she's just naked for reasons, I guess. And truly, I call it Rocky Horror because the only thing I can think is Team Over and Zola was like, Oh, yeah, this is going to be played in midnight movies and, like, people are going to come in lingerie and a Nazi cap, which was probably, Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe in Finland. I don't know, but (laughs) maybe a little ambitious on his part. It did did kind of seem as just like a way of stripping down his main actress, whatever you want to say about that. There, I mean, there is some slight implications of a black man because at that point Washington James Washington is black right there is some implications about him being found with a white woman who is half naked like there is very much commentary there oh that's a really good point that went over my head well it's like uh, it's yes they were probably going to do what to him what they did anyways but it was like after that that they captured him and they took him away and they treated him as much more dangerous than they had before. Sure, I get that absolutely. Also, well, also because he had escaped effectively. Yes, yes by correct. That point. Yeah, but I, I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to call it out the the Washington James Washington and Renata Richter romance is like admittedly very first draft love story it's very bad oh i I was gonna say just because it's simple doesn't mean that i didn't find it at least a little bit charming oh really i felt it was really forced but maybe that's just me well and maybe a lot of that is just like uh christopher kirby the actor who plays james washington like i thought he actually did a good job with the drivel he was getting so it it, might have been that yeah but i think i mean it it was very much like, you're our hero. You're our heroine. Of course you end up together. Sure. But there is some really inherent charm of how um, he says his name is Washington James Washington, like Bond James Bond. And she assumes that's his name because she's never been taught another way to say a name other than what people tell you. And also, I mean, she you know grew up speaking German where Oberfuhrer mention is like a mid-sized word. Yeah. So, and she even says her Klaus's, her kind of betrothed name, and it's like seven words long. So she's used to long names. And there is some charm there in that he is the one who pulls the scales off of her eyes. He's the one who shows her how the world works and... It just feels a little cheesy, but also, I don't know, maybe a movie about moon Nazis isn't where I should look for sincerity. Right, and maybe a movie about moon Nazis, I'm grasping at straws of this is at least a not awful romantic representation (laughs) in the film. So, I don't know. Um, Some of the other characters, we had um, Renata's father, who is a straight-up Nazi mad scientist, Correct. Um, not really redeeming in any way, but builds a giant, like, Nazi spaceship and then names it after a Wagner opera, uh, the Goddard Amarung, and, like, presumably invents 
a serum which will turn you into an Aryan presenting person. Um, and it wouldn't be Nazis without mad scientists. But we also have, I'm trying to remember his name now, the head Nazi who I just remember his last name is Kurtzfleisch because they, they try to like, it's so funny, all the Nazis are used to saying Heil Hitler and this guy who is the boss is like, no, 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 say Heil Kurtzfleisch and nobody can seem to get it because mm -hmm. they're all Nazis and you can't pull those two concepts apart anymore. <laughs> um, but uh, Fuhrer Kurtzfleisch was actually played by returning to cult fiction Udo Kier, who is a German actor I absolutely love. Stephanie, do you want to take a guess at where we've seen Udo Kier before? Blood for Dracula? Yes! Was he Dracula? Yes, he was our favorite Dracula! No! He needed merchant no. blood! <laughs> oh my god, because I asked you beforehand, I saw your notes, and I was like, who is he? And you said, I'm going to let you know later while we're recording. And I was like, okay, so it's someone awful. <laughs> well, just like the fact that, like, yeah, he was the face of that film. Right? Oh, I want to go wash my eyeballs now, please. I mean, fair enough. I, I will admit, in kind of a cruel way, I could not um, resist the urge to remind you Blood for Dracula existed. I'm so mad at you. <laughs> I mean, the funny part is, like, the dude is a widely respected German actor, and he's done, like, several good films in both Germany and America, and you're shaking your head at me because, like your own personal reflection of the man you have no way of buying that you only see him being two of the worst pieces of shit we've had on this podcast okay name like three good movies he was in blade 2 blade 2 is the best blade movie that's the one Guillermo del Toro directed uh, okay blade 2 um swan song where he plays like this retired hairdresser having a midlife crisis and it's actually like very sweet okay <laughs> And then, I mean, I'm I'm positive if he wasn't in Downfall, the aforementioned Hitler biopic, he has been in several. I actually think he was in Valkyrie, which is a movie about the guys who tried to assassinate Hitler, and it's terribly depressing. And I don't recommend it because spoilers: they don't assassinate Hitler, so they die. Yes, that's how that goes, <laughs> Andy. But yeah, he's he's a a very much like. That guy who, again, was working with what he had as, like, you are the head Nazi. You are the new Fuhrer. And this guy's going to portray you and later kill you. Go. Just like he was working with, okay, you're Dracula, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. We're, we have 30 days to make this movie we weren't expecting to make. We're only getting a first draft. Here you go. Here you go. Also, for some reason, we're going to ignore every vampire logic. And we're going to tis only a flesh wound you. Yes. He was like, oh, okay, well, whatever. <laughs> okay, whatever. I'll do this. Um, I need, speaking of very cultural references, I need to talk about how Vivian Wagner in her like space hot spandex suit kind of looked like Renata Repulsa. Rita Repulsa? Rita Repulsa? What did I say? Renata, Renata Repulsa. Repulsa. I, I, oh, because we're see, talking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Rita Repulsa. With like, all she was missing was the freaking long fingernails. Yes. Well, yeah, she, she walked on screen and you were like, oh, hello, Rufio. Oh, yeah, too, because she has, like, the very queer pompadour situation. And yep. I was like, oh. <laughs> okay. So she has Rufio meets Rita Repulsa vibes. Which very, yeah, that is, is like, the melded together amalgamation, <laughs> visually, at least, of, of what we've got here. <laughs> Vivian really is the best character in the whole movie, actually. I will absolutely agree with that. Yeah. She's yeah. the only one I'm rooting for at the end of the day. I'm not rooting for anyone else other than her. I'm rooting for James Washington because I think they really kind of do him dirty as Nazis are want to do. <laughs> this is brand new information. <laughs> but yes, I mean, the scene where like you think that she got 
brought out in the hallway and shot. And then five minutes later, she guns down a room full of Nazis and goes, he fell for the one last blowjob trick. Is like, it is one of the moments in this movie that I object, like I, I just laughed at because it is objectively funny, I think. No, my, I absolutely agree. For speaking of women in spandex, I will say that Renata has um, Buffy vibes at the end with yeah. her whole like very 2000s um, like blonde, bleach blonde straightened yeah. hair, like pin straight hair. She's got a cute little midriff and she's like, I'm going to fight the world. Julia Dietz very much pulling like Sarah Michelle Gellar vibes. I absolutely yes, agree. A thousand percent. Yeah. Um, what else do we want to talk about before we go into our closing segments? <laughs> well, okay, so this is a thought that I had. This is a, a very shitty sci-fi invasion film. Mm-hmm. And it has not been too terribly long since we also watched a very shitty sci-fi invasion pseudo-comedy film. Specifically looking at the invasion scene, I wanted to compare this to Mars Attacks. Yes, because the invasion scene is really sudden and comes out of seemingly nowhere. Or was that the third glass of wine? I mean, maybe a little column A, a little column B. It is very much, it's one of the two moments in this film where they're like, we need a big giant action set piece. Let's have a bunch of moon Nazis in Zeppelins and UFOs invade New York City and have like a sequence where fighter planes are like, diving through the buildings and, and shooting them down and stuff. Which I think was a more effective military defense turnout than anything in Mars Attacks. In Mars Attacks, all they had was the military showing up and getting owned That's true. by the aliens. That's very, very true. They just get completely annihilated in like the opening salvo of everything. Mm-hmm. Because that precedent and those world leaders continuously give the aliens second chance after second chance, which the only reason I call that out is to show how it's different in Iron Sky, where first you only ever see, like, the American president and then, like, the UN kind of, eh. Yeah. Um, And there's a moment where somebody asks like what's happening what's going on and not palin is like they're nazis points at swastika on a ufo (laughs) which is very funny in just like the idea that nobody would catch that Mm -hmm. if i see zeppelins giant zeppelins over new york city over any city i go oh shit nazis from space is that your first thought or is your first thought, oh, is like an art installation piece happening here? Because that's my first thought. I mean, if they're raining fire down on the city, probably, I think. Oh, shit, moon Nazis. Okay, see, this is why I don't want to live in New York City. Eh. Because like legitimately every bad thing, like Spider-Man, this movie, all the superhero movies, everything bad happens to New York City. And I'm like, yeah. property values in New York City must be terrible. I mean, absolutely. They, they make a joke in a lot of the Marvel movies and comics about how, like, if you want to live in the Marvel Universe, move to, like, Ohio or something. Go live where Clark Kent lived in Kansas? Yes. Yeah! Ignore the fact that that's DC and not Marvel to instead point out the idea that, like, it is probably the most New York thing for there to be an actual goddamn invasion, explosions happening around, and you run into a cab and it's somebody on their phone who does not give a single shit. <laughs> that felt incredibly accurate to me. Oh my gosh. My favorite New York cab story is that we were driving, we were being driven home by an Uber driver who was just very sweetly talking to his husband the entire time. Oh. And Alex and I are just sitting in the back of the cab like, their love is so pure. <laughs> I adore that. That's very good. But there's also this guy who's like, yeah, same shit as usual. Aliens attacking the earth. Yeah, you know, you don't understand. I need to make my phone payment. Like, Like this is more important. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The only other thing I wanted to talk about is going back to the world leader sequence a little bit. You see them throughout the movie 
And I thought that it was uh, a, one of the other funny things to me was a moment where New York is under attack and somebody is like, who's responsible for this? And the representative from North Korea stands up very confident and is like, we are. <laughs> and everyone's like, okay, North Korea. <laughs> okay, thank you. You can, you can stop lying now. <laughs> um, and then like... I go back and forth on the satire of this, but like the most serious straight plate, straight faced moment in the movie is when the earth counterattacks the moon Nazi base. And you're shown a sequence where the uh, American space force ship fires on the moon Nazi base and only gets civilian casualties. Mm-hmm. Because Tina Verinsola had to be like, okay, wait, I'm just going to sneak this one call out. I'm just going to... Just going to slide this in between all my, like, silly comedy shit. I'm just going to casually mention that America doesn't care about civilians. Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, quick question. Is this the most cult movie we've ever seen? Because I've never heard of it, and it's ridiculous, and it's over the top. Oh, that's interesting. I don't I don't think it's the most cult movie we've ever seen. But it's pretty up there. It's pretty up there. It's like very much stuck in the era. Like I feel like there was this period in the mid-aughts where like Nazis are not aside, but I just feel like you were able to get whatever movie you wanted made. Like snakes on a plane. Like snakes on a plane. I remember there's like, they made the movie Get Smart, and then they made another movie about two side characters from Get Smart doing an entirely different thing. And like, it feels very similar to this in ways that I can't actually describe. It was so long. Yeah, they could have edited it down a bit. I get that because I think there's there's a scene where Washington, James Washington, is flying a plane and Renata says, oh, do you know how to do this? And he says, it can't be any different than playing insert video game here. Right. It's like an old one, too. He's like like something on his Commodore 64 or some shit. Yeah. And the only other time we've seen that comment made is on snakes on a plane Mm. so when i started to think about it those two have a lot in common in my head sure where it's a ridiculously dumb premise i i i don't don't mean to interrupt you but i think i think that in and of itself is the thing yeah these are two movies that had a single sentence elevator pitch and were greenlit immediately moon nazis Snakes on a plane. Done. Full stop. Here's your check. (laughs) Snakes on a plane was, let's come up with the stupidest movie ever. Do you want to bet there was one motherfucker over there, like down at the other end of the bar, who is like, moon Nazis. And then the guy who did snakes on a plane was like, snakes on a plane. And moon Nazi guy goes, mine is better, but all right, I'll just like sit on it and wait. I mean, just based off his body of work, I have no reason not to believe that that wasn't Timu Verinsola like eight years before he made this movie, drunk at a bar in America, hearing about like the guy who pitched Snakes on a Plane, like buying everyone around and talking about how he sold this bullshit script and it's so amazing. He's like, I got a bullshit script and I'm going to throw in some actual, I, I got actual goddamn something to say. I'm going to, I'm going to do this movie thing. I'm going to make my moon Nazi movie. And so he did, and then faded back into Finnish obscurity. Aw, that sounds like a really lovely life. <laughs> like just drinking some tea. Yeah. Um, so before we get into the final thing, I just want to point out we are now one Scandinavian country away from seeing like a film from each of them. Ah, wait. Okay, so we've seen Pusher. Pusher, which was which was North. Danish. Oh, okay. Denmark. Yes. Iron Sky is now Finnish. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Okay, I feel no, like... we're two away, then. Okay, we need to... There. Oh, there's got to be a Swedish movie on this list. And I'm pretty sure Dead Snow, which is the Norwegian Nazi zombie movie, is also on here somewhere. So, 
We're halfway through this incredibly niche metric I have now created. Hold on, because like now I'm thinking about Scandinavia and the world and being like, okay, so there's Denmark, there's Finland, there's Sweden, there's Iceland. I don't know if I count Iceland as a Scandinavian country. I don't know where that falls. Scandinavia and the world does, so like that's my metric for everything. Fair enough. <laughs> and Norway. And, and Norway, of course. <laughs> Oh no, you're you're absolutely right. Iceland and apparently Poland are also the other Scandinavian countries. Poland? Yeah. Huh. All right. Well, this has been a incredible fucking digression. <laughs> this has been Stephanie and Andy's history corner. Tune in next time when we know what we're talking about next time. But we don't do that part yet. The first thing we do is we give every movie, even the ones like this, an Oscar. Because here on Cult Fiction, we like to think that every movie at least deserves an Oscar. Sure. So with that said, what was your Oscar for Iron Sky? My Oscar for Iron Sky was Best Murder Weapon. Go on. Renata kills Klaus with her stiletto. And the best part is like... The, so, yeah, there's the climactic scene where, like, she's trying to stop the spaceship from doing the thing. And you had made a comment when Klaus, like, pushes her across the room and, and you see very clearly a shot of her heels. Mm -hmm. You said something along the lines of, like, girl, what are you doing in those three-inch stilettos? Like, how are you... Oh, no, I was. I said, how are you falling over in two-and-a-half-inch stilettos? Get your shit together. And by the time you finished that sentence, she had plunged one of them <laughs> into his forehead. And it was perfect. You gave a laugh that I have never heard before, and it was amazing. <laughs> it was this, like, scream of delight. <laughs> I'm very happy. It made me so joyful because it would the, just the just the synergy of me being like how can you not walk in two and a half inch stilettos come on amateur hour and then wham ha perfect yeah <laughs> what was your oscar sorry my oscar maybe didn't give me as much joy and delight but i, I nonetheless want to give iron sky the oscar for best representation of foreign policy Specifically for the scene where the United States reveals that they have a secret, like, militarized spaceship and everybody gets mad at the U.S. And then in the moment where, like, oh, no, Vivian Wagner's going to die and the U.S. ship's going to go down, every other country with a delegate at the table, except for Finland, also reveals that they... Also, their country also has a secret militarized spaceship, and they come into the rescue. <laughs> Isn't the director Finnish? Yes. Ah. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit of like a home team nod there, but also I totally buy that Finland does not have a secret space program. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but everyone else, and Russia's is just the mere satellite, and somebody even calls out, wasn't that destroyed? It was a very fun moment for me, and also just the idea that every country is secretly plotting behind the backs of all the others to essentially create Space Force makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know what else makes a lot of sense? How much I'm going to whoop your ass at Kevin Bacon? Okay, them's fighting words. Let's go. Okay. So the actress who plays Renato, Julia Dietz, was in Berlin, I Love You. Okay. Which is a very little known um, compilation movie that's just like little short films by a bunch of different German directors about loving Berlin. Nice. With Helen Mirren. Okay. And Helen Mirren was in Losing Chase, which was Kevin Bacon's directorial debut. Oh. A directorial bacon. You're welcome. Fascinating. Okay, I I see, I see how my uppance will come. Nonetheless, I I did this a different way. Um, I connected Gotts Otto, who is our villain Klaus Adler. He was in Cloud Atlas with Tom Hanks, whom 
we all know. And you were even like, this shouldn't count anymore. This shouldn't count anymore. We can't use it. Was in Apollo 13 with Kevin Bacon. We can't use Apollo 13 anymore. I think on mic, I am making this a rule. We cannot use Apollo 13 anymore. It's too easy. Okay. Okay. Okay, I will take this and I will concede defeat to the directorial bacon. I'm not saying I have to win this time. I'm just saying we have to take Apollo 13 off the table. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I accept these new rules. <laughs> these brand new rules that you're telling me about just now. You know what else I'm telling you about just now? What movie we're watching next? Because usually I'm the one who pushes that button. I know you're the one who pushes that button, but like, come on, let's go. I'm excited. All right. Well, fair enough. Uh, Every episode of Cult Fiction, we put our hands into fate and fate is the Hollywood crypt and fate is also the random number generator that I have along with our list of 284 movies. For those of you playing at home, you'll go, what happened to the last, uh, I want to say seven movies and it turns out I had a formatting error. So I apologize, it's not 291, it is 284. I know you're just so upset at me right now that I have three months less of films for us. Nonetheless, we're going to find out what we are watching next on Cult Fiction, and that is number 123. Yay! Very lovely number there. (laughs) Oh, this is going to be a goddamn left turn. Okay, um, 123... Is the Spike Jones directed existential drama being John Malkovich? Okay. I have nothing like I, I made a very like paper thin connection between the promise and iron sky. This is just a complete like we're taking a left turn with this next movie. Hey guys, you've done two movies about genocidal characters. Let's go over here. Let's go to a nice actor who, as far as I know, hasn't ever really done anything awful. John Malkovich. Ta-da! <laughs> well, where can we watch John Malkovich? Let's find out. Being John Malkovich is at time of recording. Available on Vudu, Amazon Prime, and YouTube for rent. Yay! Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time as we journey inward and become star of such hits as Con Air, Mice and Men, and the new Pope being John Malkovich. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Boel.